0: In the link below. Chapter 7 of the Autobiography of an Ex
1: Colored Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Taye Abdul Olawanli, San Miguel, El Salvador. Chapter 7 I shall take advantage of this pause in my narrative. To describe more closely the club spoken of in the latter part of the preceding chapter, to describe it as, I afterwards came to know it as an habitué. I shall do this not only because of the direct influence it had on my life, but also because it was at that time the most famous place of its kind in New York, and it was well known to both whites and colored people of certain classes. I have already stated that, in the basement of the house, there was a Chinese restaurant. The Chinaman who kept it did an exceptionally good business, for chop suey was a favorite dish among the frequenters of the place. It is a food that somehow has the power of absorbing alcoholic liquors that have been taken into the stomach. I have heard men claim that they could sober up on chop suey. Perhaps that accounted in some degree for its popularity. On the main floor, there were two large rooms, a parlor about 30 feet in length and a large square back room into which the parlor opened. The floor of the parlor was carpeted. The tables and chairs were arranged about the room. The windows were draped with lace curtains, and the walls were literally covered with photographs or lithographs of every colored man in America who had ever done anything. There were pictures of Frederick Douglass and of Peter Jackson and of all the lesser lights of the prize-fighting ring of all the famous jockeys and the stage celebrities down to the newest song and dance team. The most of these photographs were autographed and in a sense, made a really valuable collection. In the back room, there was a piano and tables were placed around the wall. The floor was bare and the center was left vacant for singers, dancers, and others who entertained the patrons. In a closet in this room, which jutted out into the hall, the proprietor kept his buffet. There was no open bar, because the place had no liquor license. In this back room, the tables were sometimes pushed aside, and the floor given over to general dancing. The front room, on the next floor, was a sort of private party room. A back room, on the same floor, contained no furniture, and was devoted to the use of new and ambitious performers. In this room, song and dance teams practiced their steps, acrobatic teams practiced their tumbles, and many other kinds of acts? rehearsed their turns. The other rooms of the house were used as sleeping apartments. No gambling was allowed, and the conduct of the place was surprisingly orderly. It was, in short, a center of colored bohemians and sports. Here the great prize fighters were wont to come, the famous jockeys, the noted minstrels, whose names and faces were familiar on every billboard in the country. And these drew a multitude of those who loved to dwell in the shadow of greatness. There were then no organizations giving performance of such order as are now given by several colored companies. That was because no manager could imagine that audiences would pay to see Negro performers in any other role than that of Mississippi River roustabouts. But there were lots of talent and ambition. I often heard the younger and brighter men discussing the time when they would compel the public to recognize that they could do something more than grin and cut pigeon wings. Sometimes, one or two of the visiting stage professionals, after being sufficiently urged, would go into the back room and take the places of regular amateur entertainers. But they were very sparing with these favors, and the patrons regarded them as special treats. There was one man, a minstrel, who whenever he responded to a request to do something, never essayed anything below a reading from Shakespeare. How well he read, I do not know but he had greatly impressed me, and I can say that at least he had a voice, which strangely stirred those who heard it. Here was a man who made people laugh at the size of his mouth, while he carried in his heart a burning ambition to be a tragedian, and so after all he did play a part in a tragedy. These notables of the ring, the turf and the stage, drew to the place crowds of admirers, both white and colored. Whenever one of them came in, there were awe-inspired whispers from those who knew him by sight, In which they enlightened those around them as to his identity and hinted darkly at their great intimacy with the noted one those who were on terms of approach immediately showed their privilege over others less fortunate by gathering around their divinity i was at first among those who dwelt in darkness most of these celebrities i had never heard of this made me an object of pity among many of my new associates i soon learned however to fake a knowledge for the benefit of those who were greener than I. And, finally, I became personally acquainted with the majority of the famous personages who came into the club. A great deal of money was spent here. So many of the patrons were men who earned large sums. I remember one night, a dapper little brown-skinned fellow was pointed out to me, and I was told that he was the most popular jockey of the day, and that he earned $12,000 a year. This latter statement I couldn't doubt for with my own eyes I saw him spending at about thirty times that rate. For his friends and those who were introduced to him, he brought nothing but wine in the sporting circles. Wine means champagne, and paid for it at five dollars a quart. He sent a quart to every table in the place with his compliments, and on the table at which he and his party were seated, there were more than a dozen bottles. It was the custom at the club for the waiter not to remove the bottles when champagne was being drunk until the party had finished. There were reasons for this. It advertised the brand of wine, it advertised that the party was drinking wine, and it advertised how much they had bought. This jockey had won a great race that day, and he was rewarding his admirers for the homage they paid him, all of which he accepted with a fine air of condescension. Besides the people I have just been describing, there was at the place almost every night one or two parties of white people, men and women who were out sightseeing or slumming. They generally came in cabs. Some of them would stay only for a few minutes, while others sometimes stayed until morning. There was also another set of white people who came frequently. It was made up of variety performers and others who delineated darky characters. They came to get their imitations firsthand from the Negro entertainers they saw there. There was still another set of white patrons comprised of women. These were not occasional visitors, but five or six of them were regular habituees. When I first saw them, I was not sure that they were white. In the first place, among the many colored women who came to the club, there were several just as fair. And secondly, I always saw these women in the company with colored men. They were all good-looking and well-dressed, and seemed to be women of some education. One of these, in particular, attracted my attention. She was an exceedingly beautiful woman of perhaps thirty-five. She had glistening copper-colored hair, very white skin, and eyes very much like De Maurier's conception of Trilby's twin gray stars. When I came to know her, I found that she was a woman of considerable culture. She had traveled in Europe, spoke French, and played the piano well. She was always dressed elegantly, but in absolutely good taste. She always came to the club in a cab and was soon joined by a well-set-up, very black young fellow. He was always faultlessly dressed. One of the most exclusive tailors in New York made his clothes, and he wore a number of diamonds in about as good taste as they could be worn by a man. I learned that she paid for his clothes and his diamonds. I learned, too, that he was not the only one of his kind. More that I learned would be better suited to a book on social phenomenon than to a narrative of my life. This woman was known at the club as the Rich Will. She went by a very aristocratic-sounding name which corresponded to her appearance. I shall never forget how hard it was for me to get over my feeling of surprise, and perhaps more than surprise, at seeing her with her black companion. Somehow, I never exactly enjoyed the sight. I have devoted so much time to this pair, the widow and her companion, because it was through them that another decided turn was brought about in my life.
0: End of chapter seven. Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC,